Psalm 16, page 453 in the Bibles, in the pew. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be together worshiping our risen Savior. Um, he is alive, and so we have hope. Let's pray together before we study God's Word. God, we bless you because according to your great mercy, you have caused your people to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And you gave us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And it is kept in heaven for us, and you are keeping us by your power, guarding us through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time when Jesus returns. And so in this we rejoice this morning we give you thanks that we are not hopeless, that death doesn't get the last word, that we don't have to despair because you have defeated death and you have dealt with our deepest and greatest problem, our sin before you, our guilt before you. And so we thank you for this weekend that represents everything to us, the life and the death of our Savior Jesus in our place on the cross, taking the punishment we deserve for our sin, even though he knew no sin, he took ours so that we could be reconciled to you. And we thank you that he rose again victorious over the grave and in him we can be made alive together with Christ and saved by your grace even though we were dead, spiritually dead in our sins. So, Father, I pray that you would thrill us with the truths, the realities of the gospel, the good news about Jesus this morning, that we would celebrate together all that's ours in Christ. Lord, we 
do have good news and we have reason to rejoice, but we also acknowledge the fact that we live in a broken, hurting, just messed up world. And we ourselves are often subject to deep hurt and pain. We give way to hopelessness and despair. And you know where everybody's at as they walk in this morning. You know what they need. And so, Lord, for those who are feeling pretty hopeless, who are despairing, who are wondering if you've forgotten about them, who are wondering if these things are real and true, Lord, would you please speak to them and turn their sorrow and their despair into joy and hope, even if it's just to kindle and awaken hope that you are good, that you are for them and not against them, that you can help them. So Lord, please give us eyes to see you in all of your glory this morning. We need to see you. We need to hear from you. So please speak now as we study your word. We know that you have inspired it by your spirit. So speak again through it to our hearts that it wouldn't just be information that passes through our ears in one ear out the other, but that it would sink down into our hearts and change us from the inside out. So do that, Lord, for your great namesake, for your glory, and for our good. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, most Americans, I think, maybe if you were to ask around on the street, are familiar with the Ten Commandments. They've at least heard of that phrase. Um, some might even know a few of them, be able to name a few of them. Some might know the first one. You shall have no other gods before me, besides me, God says. So, you know, you could always take a little informal poll this week. You could ask some people in your life, why do you think that that is the first of the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me, besides me. Why does God command that? Is it because he's controlling and domineering? Is it because he's like this insecure, jealous husband that doesn't want his wife to even talk to another man? Is it because he's like a celestial egomaniac? You know, he creates people to praise him and tell him how great he is, kind of stroke his divine ego. Is that why? Why do you think that's the first commandment? Like deep down, why do you think that's the first commandment? Those questions actually get at, they kind of tap into one of the most important deep beliefs that we have. Every one of us has deep beliefs as far as the character, trustworthiness, goodness of God. So is God good? What's your deep down, honest belief on that one? Is the God behind this glorious, mysterious, 
beautiful, but also terrible and brutal and unjust world, is he really good? And does God really have my good in mind? Is he good or is he kind of like this hard and harsh taskmaster? Is he good all the way through or is he kind of like Jekyll and Hyde? Is he a celestial killjoy or is he actually the sum and the source of all joy? Is he holding out on you or is he holding out to you true and abundant life? So hold that thought for a minute. So here we are, Easter morning, Resurrection Sunday. This is like the high point of the church calendar. It's like one of my favorite Sundays of the year. I even put a tie on. It's like once a year, you know. I mean, in terms of historical significance and personal significance, the celebration maybe of the incarnation at Christmas time is the only competition. So the meaning of Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday absolutely central, represents everything to us as Christians. It's everything to us because God himself is everything to us. And Good Friday and Easter are why God is everything to us as Christians. So our text, as was read by Lynn, um, is Psalm 16, and I think it would be helpful for us to think of this psalm like this. Psalm 16 is what no other gods before me sounds like in real life, in real time, okay? So it begs the question, as we read this psalm, as we see it as a mirror kind of held up to examine our hearts and our lives, what is your source of good? You could think of Psalm 16 kind of like a a wagon wheel. You'll see in the bulletin there's a little diagram um, I've never done notes this way. So, um, anyway, hopefully it's helpful to kind of picture it this way, okay? But it's kind of like a, a wagon wheel, and the hub is the fact that God is our good and the source of all our good. And so whoever, whatever is at the center of your life that, that's really your source of good, it determines all the spokes, all the bubbles around that center are impacted, shaped by what's at the center, okay? For good or for ill, for our good or for bad. So we're going to walk through the psalm and kind of go around the ring of circles clockwise. So if you're looking at the little sheet in the bulletin, you can see it looks like this, okay? So that's kind of where the notes can be taken today if you want to take them. Um. We'll start at the top, 12 o'clock, just go clockwise all the way around, okay? So, first bubble there on the top, refuge, verse 1. If God is our good, the source of all our good, then He is our refuge. Verse 1, preserve me, O God, David writes, for in you I take refuge. So, Where do you run when threats come your way? Okay, when you wake up in the morning, your mind and your heart is just starting to spin with anxiety. Where do you go? Where do you go for safety, for security, for peace, for protection? Who's your refuge? 
What is your refuge? So if the God of this universe, the one who made everything and made it all good, good, very good, the one who is the source of all good, who is our greatest good, if he is your ultimate source of good, then you're going to run to him as your refuge. That's part of the good that's ours in him. Protection. He's our safe place in the face of threats and fears and anxiety. I mean, what better refuge could he find than God? Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. Name represents his character, who he is. The righteous runs into it and is safe. So if God is for us, who can be against us? Seriously, who can be against you? So any of you read in the news this past week um, about the black hole that was for the first time, um, captured, sort of, um, in a photo. So it's in galaxy M87, and according to astronomy.com, M87 is a behemoth elliptical galaxy that sits some 53 million light years from Earth. This giant galaxy holds trillions of stars and helps anchor the roughly 2,000 galaxies including the Milky Way, that make up our local cosmic city, dubbed Virgo Cluster. M87 supermassive black hole packs the mass of several billion suns into a surprisingly tiny volume. And a seven-year study with the Hubble telescope caught this invisible beast firing a powerful jet of high-energy particles out at nearly the speed of light shooting them roughly 5,000 light years into space. Previous research on M87 supermassive black hole indicates the galaxy's mighty jets are produced when a dense disk of matter called an accretion disk whirls around the black hole at up to 2 million miles per hour. The material within the accretion disk grinds together as it circles with the innermost regions spinning faster than those farther out. This differential rotation causes the magnetic fields to get coiled up, ejecting the material, falling into the black hole at nearly the speed of light. The article goes on to say, scientists also calculated that the innermost edge of the black hole's accretion disk spans only about the width of five solar systems. Keep in mind, M87's black hole is between about 3 and 7 billion times the mass of the sun. And you could fit a million Earths inside the sun. Or about 1,000 times more massive than the Milky Way's black hole, Sagittarius A. So, God thought up black holes and called all of them as just one into being simply by speaking it into existence. And he constantly upholds and sustains every single black hole and galaxy every second of every day. So down here on this little third rock from the sun, we can face some pretty threatening things in this life. Plenty of reasons for fear and anxiety on planet Earth. But consider the greatest threats you face or have faced and then stop and ask if God is equal to the challenge. The God who made and sustains 
who knows how many black holes. If God is your good, then you have the mightiest and the safest refuge there is. He is able to deliver us from threats and difficult circumstances. He is able to also, he doesn't always deliver us. He's able also to protect and preserve our faith in and through those threats and temptations and sufferings. So even if you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't have to fear evil because God is with you. He is our ultimate good and the source of good, namely protection and refuge. Second, bubble. If God is our good, he's also our master, our Lord. Look at verse 2. David writes, I say to the Lord, you see the four capital letters there, it's referring to the divine name, Yahweh, the covenant God of steadfast love and faithfulness. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, you're my master. I have no good apart from you. So, again, what does it sound like? What's it look like to have no other gods before God? It sounds like this. It looks like this. God is your source of all good. There's no good apart from God. He's our Lord. He's our master. He is the determiner of what's good for us. He knows what's best for us. He knows what's best for our relationships, for our sexuality, for our thought life, for our hearts and our affections, what we love, what we spend our time and our money and our, how we speak and how we work and, and why we work and everything. There's no good apart from God. So with God at the center, this is the reversal of the lie that Satan was selling in the garden with the forbidden fruit. Right? Adam and Eve bought the lie that God was holding out on them. That there was good to be found apart from God. And they fell. And this good world fell apart. So Augustine, the church father who lived um, roughly A.D. 350 to 430, said, I think it's up there, so you have to pay attention, I'll read it twice. But this is an important quote. The sum of all our goods and our perfect good is God. We must not fall short of this nor seek anything beyond it. The first is dangerous. The other, impossible. The sum of all our goods and our perfect good is God. We must not fall short of this. That's dangerous to exchange your greatest good for something lesser. That's foolish. That's trading down. Nor should we try to seek anything beyond it. It's impossible. There is no better good. There is no greater good than God. The first is dangerous, the other impossible. So who knows what's best? I mean, you've got to think about like Monday, average, ordinary, everyday life. Why do we wander? Why do we sin? It's because we buy the lie that God's going to steal our joy and something else is going to deliver it to us. Who knows what's best for you? Who's going to be your master? Who's going to determine what's good and what's best for you? You shall have no other gods before me. So our temporal and our eternal good is wrapped up in believing the goodness of 
you shall have no other gods before me. And the goodness of the God who gave that command. So when God is our good, we know we have no good apart from him. We're bound to him in this vertical relationship, but it also shapes our horizontal relationships with others. It impacts who our companions are. Okay, verses 3 and 4, third bubble. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply their drink offerings of blood. I will not pour out or take the names of their gods, their false gods, on my lips. So who are your people? In whom do you delight? If God is your good, we are going to delight most in those who trust him and display his goodness. Okay? So those who reject God, belittle him, they're not the ones that we admire and align with. Those who bow to false idols, run after false gods, worship created things rather than the creator. So if we love God, if he is our good, we're going to love God's people. They're our family, right? So how can you delight in people who hate the one you love the most? So if you follow after those who reject God as their good, kind of taking your cues from them, then you're wandering away from what is good for you. You're doing yourself harm. See it? So, so who actually is it that you admire most? Who do you listen to the most on an average week? Who are your closest companions? If God is your good, then it's, if it's people who think God is not good, there's some dissonance there, isn't there? Now listen, as soon as I say that, let me qualify it. This is not to say that Christians should just kind of isolate themselves in some, like, holy huddle from those who don't believe like they do. Not at all. In fact, part of the excellence of an admirable Christian, you know, the excellent ones, is their love for people who don't trust Jesus as Savior, who believe all kinds of other things. In fact, these kind of people even love their enemies in beautiful, admirable ways. So just like Jesus, he didn't return evil for evil, but blessed, we love everyone, even our enemies. And we want them to know and have the good that we have in God. So, I know there's plenty of so-called Christians and even real Christians that sorely misrepresent Christ, but Christians who have no other gods before God, for whom God is their central and supreme source of good, they are reflections, hopefully radiant reflections of the goodness of God. And you can't help but want to keep company with them. On the other hand, those who ignore God, skeptical and cynical of him, they're not neutral. Everybody worships someone. Everybody worships something. Okay? So the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. They do have their gods. So those who turn away from God, you know what? You're not good enough. 
thank you very much. They multiply their sorrows, so they deny themselves the very thing they most desperately need. And speaking of being, God being the very thing we most desperately need, look next at the fourth bubble, sustenance, verses 5 and 6. The next two verses speak of God like he's our food and drink, okay, like our source of sustenance. So who is it? What is it that actually does that for you, sustains you, refreshes you, feeds your soul? Where do you go for strength and vitality in life? Look at verse 5. The Lord Yahweh is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen from me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. David is saying that God is his, like, food and drink. He is David's source of good, and David feeds on God. He's sustained by him. He relies on him. He runs on God because God is his source of sustenance in life. So if we don't run to the Lord like this, we're starving our souls the one thing that we most need. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 4, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. His words, his truth is food for our souls. It's our sustenance. Or or listen to the invitation in Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? This is obviously speaking metaphorically of God's grace and his truth. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. So if God is your good, then we're going to choose him as our soul's food and drink. We're going to feed on his word and depend on him in prayer, living in his strength by his grace, not running on our own steam. And then we're also going to seek his counsel, um, the fifth bubble here. Verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart or my conscience instructs me. So again, starts at the center. If God is our good, then guess what? We have a wonderful counselor. So through his word, he has revealed where you came from, why you're here, what went wrong, how it can be made right, and how everything is going to be restored and renewed in the end. So he knows us better than we know ourselves. Of course, we should seek his counsel. He knows what's good for us. He knows what we truly need. He is infinitely wise, knows the end from the beginning. That's the counselor you can tap into. His word also informs and trains our conscience, shapes our conscience, so that our heart then instructs us as we ponder his counsel. And again, this is more of the good that is ours when God is our good. So when God is our good, he's like the sun of our solar system, you know, around which all of life finds its proper orbit, 
then we learn to live and we find stability. Next bubble, verse 8. David writes, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. So the psalmist already said that Yahweh is his Lord. The Lord is his Lord. He's the one he follows because he believes he is the source of good. And so it follows that, practically speaking, David is going to constantly set Yahweh always before him. He's always thinking of the Lord. He knows he lives all of his life before the face of God. And he actually wants it that way. He wants to live all of life in a way that honors God's first place, central place in his life. He wants to have no other gods before God. Okay, so um, a theologian named Charles Hodge kind of illustrates this by the example of his own life. He wrote this, As far back as I can remember, I had the habit of thanking God for everything I received and asking him for everything I wanted. I prayed walking along the streets, in school and out of school, whether playing or studying. I did not do this in obedience to any prescribed rule. I thought of God as an everywhere present being full of kindness and love who would not be offended if children talked to him. I've set the Lord always before me. That's, what, what does that look like? It looks like trusting in the Lord with all your heart, in all your ways, acknowledging him in this relational dynamic. And when you are with him and he is with you, you will not be shaken. So this manner of life, it leads to stability. Because he's at my right hand, he is my strength, my defender, my advocate, my help. I shall not be shaken. So think about this in the, the scope of the whole big storyline of the Bible. We need God at our right hand. Specifically, we need the Lord Jesus at our right hand. So we actually, because of all that, you know, no confidence vote on God's goodness and worshiping and serving created things, we deserve condemnation. All of us, by nature, put the wrong thing in the center. Or we want to be in the center. We just want to displace God. We want to be in the center. And we exchange the truth about God, the glory of God, for a lie, and we worship created things rather than the Creator. So we deserve condemnation for this attempt to kind of usurp God's rightful rule, his first place. It's like cosmic insurrection. So Jesus comes. God in his mercy sends his son. He dies on Good Friday to bring grace and good to us cosmic rebels. So he died for that rebellion so that we could be forgiven Good Friday declares amnesty, pardon for all the rebels. Put your arms down, lay down your arms, and you can be welcomed. And so in the courtroom of God, God's the judge, we deserve condemnation. Jesus, the righteous, stands at our right hand as our advocate, having paid our debt in full. And if you're trusting in Christ, God is for you, not against you. If God has justified you, who can condemn you? Nobody. 
nothing can separate you from God's love. And so nothing can ultimately shake you. So do you see the stability? I've set the Lord always before me. He's at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. In Christ, God has drawn near to us that we might be drawn near to him, reconciled to him. And we can draw near to him always with confidence to receive mercy and grace to help us in our need. That is building our lives on the solid rock, the rock of Christ. There is stability when God is our good. And this good news of God's goodness on Good Friday not only gives us stability, stability that supersedes our circumstances, it also gives us joy that's out of reach of our circumstances. So, seventh bubble, joy, verse 9. Therefore, David writes, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. So, the gospel is good news. God is good. He's done great things, good things for us. Good news makes people happy. Happy people rejoice. And we have our joy wrapped up in a person who never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He'll never leave us or forsake us. So we can actually rejoice in the Lord always. If God is our good, if he's at the center, then our joy can ultimately be out of reach of our circumstances. And the kicker is that we can rejoice in the Lord, not just in this life, but we have a living hope that can't even be killed by death, which leads to the last bubble, the hope that's ours. If God is our good, the hope that's ours in verses 10 and 11. So do you see the transition from 9 to 10 and 11? Therefore, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure. Ooh, how, how's that going to happen, especially if you're going to die? How, how can you be secure even in your body? Because don't we all die? Like, I need some hope, right? I, in fact, I read this week, uh, like a little um, illustration <laughs> shows how much we need this. If we're really going to have durable joy and hope, we have to have hope beyond death. We have to have something or someone to deal with the fearful prospect of death. If you were driving a car at like 70 miles an hour, but you couldn't see out the windows, like if you didn't know where you were going, do you know how terrifying that would be? Just, just picture that. You're flying along at 70 miles an hour and the, all the windows are just blacked out and you don't know when you're going to hit the wall. We're all going to die. So if you don't know what's going to happen when you hit the wall or when you're going to hit the wall, like, you think that might shake your stability a little bit? You think that might steal your joy? Are you going to just be, like, whistling in the car? I mean, what do we do? We turn up the radio so that we don't have to think about the fact that we're hurtling towards death. We need hope. So the reason that David can rejoice is because of this hope. Look at verses 10 and 11. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy 
At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So here's why we see Psalm 16, such an appropriate text for Resurrection Sunday. David's the author of Psalm 16. David died, and he was buried, and certainly his remains decayed in the Middle East somewhere. So what does this mean? Well, Peter, the Apostle Peter, actually quotes Psalm 16, 8 to 11 in Acts 2 when he was preaching after the Spirit comes at Pentecost. So he says that Jesus' death and resurrection is the ultimate fulfillment of these verses here in Psalm 16, and he interprets them like this. Acts 2, 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to Hades or Sheol, nor did his flesh see corruption. So God had promised David, do you remember? 2 Samuel 7, that his kingdom would last forever. So the covenant that God made with David would live on forever through one of his descendants. But you know what? I mean, his descendants, these kings that came from David, were all kind of pretty disappointing, right? They never brought perfect peace or prosperity. Solomon, you know, pretty awesome kingdom, but he made a mess of things with all those wives. But then Jesus, the son of David, finally comes. He is the true and the perfect king that we've all been longing for. And he was not abandoned to the grave. And his body did not see corruption. He was raised on the third day. God through him, made known to us the path of life and the path to eternal life. So Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. He dealt with our sin. He opened the way back to God. He defeated death, and he is the beginning of the resurrection, the new life, the renewal of all things. So for everybody for whom Jesus is their Savior and Lord, we have a living hope, a hope that, it, that is filled with fullness of joy forever. So, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, will not be separated from God forever, will not perish but have everlasting life. It's this living hope. Can't be killed even by death. So we can be confident even in the face of death because of this living hope. Nothing, no one can take that from you, even your earthly death, because you have the hope of eternal life with God who is your good. So death can't separate you from your good, your ultimate source of good. Instead, actually, you go to see him face to face. And then Jesus returns and makes everything new. And just as Jesus raised from the dead, you will be raised and everything will be made new. And we will have fullness of joy forever in the presence of God. It's ours.
all of that good is ours if God is our good. So think about it. Fullness of joy, perfect quality. Forever, infinite quantity of good and joy and pleasure. I mean, isn't that what we always long for? Isn't that the problem? Isn't that why this world is just so, it just never satisfies us and we have so many aches and longings? Because any good that we do taste in this life, it's always ah, so quickly in the rearview mirror. It's fleeting. It doesn't last. Or there's never enough of it. So the problem is it's either, you know, the quality isn't good enough or the quantity isn't big enough which I think is why we try so many things. We've tried all kinds of different sources of good, trying to stuff them in the center to fill this gaping hole in our hearts. Money doesn't do it. All that money buys can't do it. Stuffing more money isn't going to do it. Well, if I just had a little bit more, if I just, this, this, no. Miserable billionaires. Sex won't do it. Success won't do it. All the if-onlys are just lies. Comfort, control won't do it. So, a little bit more or a different thing, if it's not God, you're never going to be satisfied. It will never work. C.S. Lewis said this, if you find yourself with a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that you were made for another world. Jeremiah Burroughs has this little book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, and he wrote this. The reason why you have not got contentment in the things of the world is not because you have not got enough of them. That is not the reason. But the reason is because they are not things proportional to that immortal soul of yours that is capable of God himself. Many think that when they are troubled and have not got contentment, it's because they have but a little in the world. And if they had more, then they would be content. I love this. That is just as if a man were hungry, and to satisfy his craving stomach, he should gape and hold open his mouth to take in the wind. And then should think that the reason why he's not satisfied is because he has not got enough of the wind. No, the reason is because the thing is not suitable to the craving stomach. Nothing is good enough. Nothing is big enough to satisfy us. C.S. Lewis, again, quote him again. He said it well. I think one may be quite rid of the old haunting suspicion which raises its head in every temptation that there is something else than God, some other country into which he forbids us to trespass. Do you really believe he's good? Some kind of delight which he doesn't appreciate or just chooses to forbid, but which would be real delight if only we were allowed to get it. The thing just isn't there. Whatever we desire is either what God is trying to give us as quickly as he can or else a false picture of what he is trying to give us. A false picture which would not attract us for a moment if we saw the real thing. He knows what we want, even in our vilest acts. He is longing to give true and ultimate good, 
to us. God is the only good with which our souls will be satisfied. So you and I, creatures made in the image of God, to be in loving relationship with God have no real or lasting good apart from God. Sex sours apart from God. Food spoils apart from God. If you run to it as your refuge, your comfort, it ends up kind of turning on you, doesn't it? You kind of become a slave. Something that you thought was a good thing doesn't make a good God thing. Money corrupts apart from God. Success inflates our pride apart from God. Comfort is dangerous apart from God. Again, C.S. Lewis, when first things are put first, second things are not suppressed but increased. So, look at that little thing. What is your source of good? What's really, functionally, like, for real in the center? What happens if you actually have other gods before God? Just, just think about it. What do we end up doing? We run to other refuges. We self-medicate. Right? We could go through all the bubbles. We won't do that. But if God is in our good, if we're not running to him as a refuge and there's something else at the center and the troubles and the threats and the anxiety press in, it's easy to drown that in drugs or alcohol or food or sleep or entertainment or bury yourself in your work. So who is your safe place? Where is your safe place? Where do you hide? Where's your refuge? To whom do you go? Really. Think it through. Put, put one of those gods that you've tempted to bow down to in the center and think through the implications all the way around the horn. So, for instance, if success is a temptation for you. You want to be somebody. You want people to look up to you. Think about the companions thing. You're going to want to be with people that make you look good or that help you get ahead. And you're going to avoid people that are going to get in the way of that or make you look bad. If body image is at the center, this pride or vanity or whatever, you're going to spend, obviously, maybe an inordinate amount of time looking in the mirror or working on your own body, but you're also going to spend a lot of time looking at people who embody what you wish you had. And you're either going to just love them and admire them, or you're going to hate them and be jealous of them and enslaved. Or how about counsel? If something else is at the center... You're always going to be looking to the guru du jour for that particular thing to get you there, to that good that's promised. So listen, do you see that no other gods is a loving command from a good God? Because he wants to give you himself. Nothing can bring solid joy. Nothing can bring unshakable hope like he does. No other gods is a loving command. 
what steals our good and kills our joy and our hope and our stability is putting something else in the center. Unbelief in the goodness of God is the root of all of our problems. Trying something else other than no other gods before me. So salvation is actually a miracle of inside-out renovation where the center changes and then everything around changes. Christianity is not just trying, trying to be better, do better on a couple bubbles out on the edges. It's a miracle change at the center. It's what it means to be born again, radically new from the inside out with God at the center, and then everything changes organically from there. That's what Easter's all about. It's what Jesus died and rose again to do. So let's just kick every false source of good off the throne of our lives. And with the risen King, Jesus, at the center of our lives, guess what? The best is yet to come. Let's pray, and then we're going to close by singing By fixing our eyes on our good and great God, we're going to behold him and sing of his goodness to close. So God, I pray that you would help us to see you in your good, good, very good character and help us to trust you. Would you please be the center of our lives? Would you help us to see that the call to live that way is for our good? You want to do us good. You want to be our greatest good. So would you just expose all the lies for what they are that we're so susceptible to? And Lord, if there's anybody here that doesn't yet know your goodness experientially, personally. Lord, right now, just show how thin and unsatisfying all of the attempts to put something or someone in the center, just show them how fruitless that that search is. And I pray that they would run to you and trust in you, and say, make me new from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen.